We do extol you and praise you for lifting us up out of our sins. And so we ask now that you would work through your word, that you would work through these new covenant witnesses that we have in Scripture, that we would all come to believe and trust that are in Jesus and that our affection for your Son would increase, that he might be glorified in all that we say and do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a way to do this that kills people. There, there is a way to preach, uh, a way to do church life that kills. There's a, a way to evangelize your coworkers that kills. There's a way to be friends with the people in this room that kills. This is not a game. The Apostle Paul understood that. He found himself in quite a situation writing to the Corinthians. At the time of 2 Corinthians, in, in the city of Corinth, there was a group of false teachers. Paul called them sarcastically as super apostles. And they were doing damage to the Corinthian Christians. They were doing ministry in a way that would ultimately kill. So, of course, Paul wanted to protect the Corinthians. However, one of the main things the super apostles were doing was they were attacking Paul's credibility. They were attacking Paul the person on all sorts of fronts. Right? You listen to that guy, he's not a very good preacher, he's kind of mousy in person, he's fickle, he'll say anything to make himself look good. The attacks on Paul put him in an interesting bind. Many of the believers were being led astray, so, so he has to address this. But since one of the primary things the false teachers were doing was attacking Paul himself in order to help the Corinthians, Paul found himself needing to defend his own ministry. Self-defense in an argument always has the danger of sounding self-glorifying, self-centered. It's a tough spot. Paul found himself needing to defend himself. It's difficult. Difficult to defend yourself without glorifying yourself. And that, too, would be deadly to the Corinthian believers. Part of what the super apostles were wrong was self-glorification. And, of course, when you're suspicious of someone, their bragging doesn't do anything to endear them to you. If you had a doctor who was trying to get you to become their patient and they were bragging about their credentials in a smug way, I'm Harvard-trained, first in my class, work at Johns Hopkins, treating the most difficult cases for the last 30 years. I fly everywhere, only the most important people. You'd be lucky to have me. And that's a turnoff. You, you might avoid going to see them if you had heart problems, even though everything they said is literally a reason why you should want to go see them. So Paul needed to defend himself. It was crucial for the Corinthians that he defended himself and so exposed the false teachers who were only leading them to death. It's a fine line to walk, helping people and defending yourself. So how does he do it? How does Paul defend himself and his ministry in a way that is life-saving, that doesn't turn people away, that doesn't glorify himself in the same way that the super-apostles were? Well, Paul did spend the first part of the letter, you'll remember, clearing up some specific misunderstandings based about claims of his motives. But then, in chapter 2, he slips into this four-chapter-long doxological digression, which is just a fancy way of saying a four-chapter-long meditation 
on how wonderful Jesus Christ is. How amazing that everything Jesus is, that did is. As we saw last time, this four-chapter-long devotional was sparked by Paul's meditation on his own weakness. The thought of his own weakness drove Paul to praise God for working in and through weak Paul. And the whole of these four chapters are actually crucial for the type of defense that Paul is making, the way he is going about responding to the false teachers. To be sure, Paul addressed some of their claims in chapters 1 and 2, and he's going to speak very harshly about them in very direct ways in chapters 10 through 13. But in many ways, everything that Paul says in the letter, particularly everything he says in this four-chapter-long meditation on the gospel and the ministry, is meant to undercut the false teachers. It's meant to be part of Paul's defense, but in a life-giving, God-glorifying way. Part of the reason for that great gospel digression in chapters 2 through 7 is to expound on the nature of Christian ministry in light of the real gospel so that the Corinthians would be able to see through the false teachers. Unlike in Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul says almost nothing about the specific content of what these false teachers were teaching. Instead, he focuses on their way of doing ministry, their ministry philosophy. Boy, they, have they got it wrong. There is a way to do ministry that kills people. So Paul wants to show that if you really believe the gospel, that's going to affect church life. It's going to affect church ministry. The gospel is going to dictate how you serve Christ. The truth of the gospel has a bearing on Christian ministry and life. Well, of course it does, we say. But oftentimes that line isn't as direct as it should be. Sin has a way of muddling things up. We can claim to believe the gospel and then do ministry and life together as a church in a way that actually works against our service to Christ. That is actually death-bringing. That's what's going on under the surface. Paul is explaining in these four chapters implications of the gospel for ministry, for church work, for service, for preaching and teaching and evangelizing, in part in order to help the Corinthians be able to see through false teaching and its fruits for themselves. So today we're going to look at a little snippet of this, a little snippet of this four-chapter-long gospel meditation that reveals how the whole thing relates to Paul's self-defense. How does this doxological meditation relate to Paul's defense of himself? And in the process, we'll see a way to do ministry that saves, not kills. So I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I ask you to turn there, and as you are turning there, I will read them for us now. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul recognizes the danger of how it might have started to sound like he was being self-glorifying. In the verse immediately before ours in 2.17, Paul had stated the basics that undergird his ministry, that undergirds all true gospel ministry. We are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. All true gospel ministry should be gospel-speaking ministry. That's done sincerely. That's focused on what God has commanded his followers to say. That's self-consciously an act of worship, all while trusting Christ. And Paul understands that by claiming that faithfulness for himself, it might sound self-aggrandizing, which is why in our text he quickly qualifies with the rhetorical question right at the beginning of verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? That's rhetorical. Expects no, right? Which is to say, no, we are not commending ourselves. I'm not saying any of this to glorify myself. In many ways, that's the main point of the six verses, the main motivation for the whole four chapters. These four chapters exist to take the spotlight off of Paul. My ministry is not about my glory. Ministry is not about the Apostle Paul. But how is that so? How how does Paul do this? He's going to show you. Otherwise, this statement at the beginning of verse 1 could just be false humility. People can say, oh, please, it's, it's not about me, when it is definitely about me. Thanks for noticing. Just adding the qualification does not mean you aren't self-aggrandizing. Saying it's not about me might just be the cherry on top of the self-glory Sunday. So we need to see how Paul continues. This, this isn't false humility. There are key steps that he takes in uh, defending himself without glorifying himself. The first step is yes, another rhetorical question. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Again, the expected answer is no. No, we do not. But he picks a very physical, tangible type of credential or validation, a recommendation letter. And these were common. Paul himself would write them for other apostles. You see that in the, the New Testament. So it's not like Paul is saying a letter of recommendation in and of itself is bad. Right? But he is saying, uh, I don't need one. He's, he's making the point. I don't need one. I don't need one to present to you. I don't want you to write one for me. It's the first step in Paul's defense. I don't need a physical trophy validating my ministry. I don't need a recommendation letter to or from you because you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. And that's a surprise. In verse 1, he's talking about literal letters, credentials, things that you can hold and see and show. And suddenly he does a metaphorical flip. You are our letter. Meaning your very existence as a church is my validation. I don't need anything else. I don't need the type of glory that comes from a piece of paper. I have you, believing you, going to heaven you, loving Jesus you. That's why he also says in verse 2, you are a letter written on our hearts. In other words, I have seen and I know what God is doing. I am confident in what God is doing in your lives. There is a, a personal, existential validation that the Corinthian church is for Paul. It's a letter on his own heart. But the letter that the Corinthian church is is also still a public validation. Note the end of verse 2. You are a letter known and read by all. Others can see it too. Your very existence is a visible witness 
People can see, look at the Corinthian church that Paul planted. Paul's the one who started that church. He spent one and a half years in Corinth evangelizing, then establishing the church before he left. So the Corinthians are evidence both to Paul himself and to the outside world of Paul's apostolic ministry. But this is still just a step into self-defense because by itself, this does not absolve Paul of the charge of being self-glorifying. At this point, this could still take a self-glorifying turn. It could, Paul could go in, in two very different directions with the idea of the Corinthians being his validation. By calling the Corinthians his recommendation letter, he could yet still mean the Corinthians were proof, proof of how great he was. Look, look at how I successfully evangelized this area, converted all you people. I am a great preacher and teacher. I'm so patient. I endured such long hours. I argued so intelligently and persuasively. Look how big a church exists in such a strategic key city in the empire. You are my letter of validation, and boy, does it make me look great. But that's not where Paul goes with the metaphor. The existence of the Corinthians did validate the ministry of Paul, but not in a way that glorified Paul. The way that Paul defends his own ministry without glorifying himself is by crediting the work to Jesus in a substantial way, right? not just by lip service. And see how he elaborates on the metaphor in two more ways. Look at verse 3. You are a letter from Christ delivered by us. So immediately, this, this development of the picture, Paul subordinates himself to Jesus. Paul says the Corinthians are a letter written by Christ. The, Christ is the author of the letter and only delivered or transcribed by Paul. Paul understands himself and his fellow workers to have a role in ministry for sure. But ultimately, the fruit that he is looking for, the fruit that Paul cares about when it comes to ministry, has to come from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the one who wrote the letter that is the Corinthians. Jesus is the one who created the Corinthian church. At this point, Paul backgrounds himself completely from the discussion by emphasizing that the only fruit that matters comes from Jesus. You see, Paul's point is not, not just look at my ministry, but rather he says, look at Jesus. Jesus, Christ, he is doing a work in you. Jesus is the author of salvation. And Paul, continuing the metaphor, notes that Jesus writes, not with ink, but by or with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul is making a very clear reference to the prophecies of Ezekiel and more primarily Jeremiah. Listen to these two key passages, just two key passages from Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. Hear how Paul is echoing them. From Ezekiel 36, God promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then again in Jeremiah 31, which we heard earlier, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So at this point, Paul is no longer talking about just the Corinthians being a letter on his own heart, personal validation for him. He's talking about how they are a supernatural letter, a letter that was written on their own hearts by God by the ministry of Christ, who brought a new covenant, the new covenant, with his own blood. Paul's aim here is to get the Corinthians to meditate on the nature of Jesus' ministry. Jesus produced the faith and belief that you Corinthians have. And Jesus had to have done this because it was a supernatural work. Rhetorically, Paul's point is, I couldn't have done these things. I can't do these things. This is not something that can be done with pen and paper. It has to be the Spirit of God. And Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit into our hearts, giving us new hearts. So look at Jesus. That's why he says in in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. In other words, we are confident in the results of this ministry. We are confident in what is happening among you. We are confident in the work in our own hearts because it is all through Christ. Which, if you remember, that's a pretty powerful Pauline shorthand for through the work of Jesus. Jesus did this through His life, through His death, through His resurrection and ascension and His current intercession for His people. Jesus does supernatural, heart-changing work. Everything in the back half of verse 3 is Paul saying, look at Jesus, look at what He can do, look at what He does do. You are a letter written by Jesus, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. God saves through Christ. I can't do that. I can't change stone into flesh. I can't send the Holy Spirit into your heart. But I am confident because Jesus can do those things. Jesus earns you the new covenant with his life, death, resurrection, and he currently mediates that to you now from heaven. He converts people. He saves people. Jesus saves people. And then Paul reiterates in verses 5 through 6, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Now, when Paul says our sufficiency is from God, he is not saying, I don't think he's saying, all our good moral qualities come from God's work in our hearts. That's true, but that's not his point here. Paul isn't talking about qualifications for ministry like in the 1 Timothy sense. He isn't talking about being equipped for ministry. Like, these are the character qualities you need to evidence in order to be a minister, and God gave them to Paul. That's true, but that's not his point. Nor is Paul talking about particular ministry competencies, skills, or or giftings, and then saying God gave those necessary skills to Paul. That's, That's also true, just like how Exodus makes a point of saying God gave the skill to Aholiab and Bezalel in order to let them make the metal and cloth things that they need to be, to be craftsmen. But that's true, but it's not the point. By speaking about being sufficient for ministry, Paul isn't talking about skills and talents and then giving God credit for those skills and talents. 
The focus in our text is on God, not Paul, except in that Paul is weak. When Paul says we are not sufficient so as to claim anything as coming from us, it does not mean our talents and skills ultimately come from God. He wants to keep the focus on something that is never located in Paul at any point in time. Right? There's a way to give credit to God for qualities that you have that's still self-glorifying. Like when Jesus tells the parable of the self-righteous Pharisee who prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You can verbally give God credit for the way you are while still glorifying yourself. And Paul wants no misunderstanding. He does not mean here, Paul gets ulti- God gets ultimate credit for how great I am because he gave me all these gifts and skills and talents. Paul means the success of any ministry that I'm engaged in is not from something that you can locate in me, including gifts and skills, even the ones that come from God. Real ministry success, the kind that ultimately matters, come, has to come from Jesus the reason the success in Paul's vocation that is in view has to come from God in Christ is because of the very nature of the ministry. He says in verse 6, he's a minister of a new covenant, of the new covenant. So we will understand why the sufficiency, the success that Paul has in mind, has to come from God in unpacking that idea, a minister of the new covenant. Now, in, in, um, in modern parlance, uh, minister is a title that often comes with prestige. Even in an increasingly atheistic culture, there's a certain gravitas to being called a minister uh, in the church. In some parts of the world, they use that title for important government roles, like, you know, minister of defense. But Paul's usage here still carries the original connotation of this word, which could easily be forgotten by us. Servant. To minister means to serve. Minister here isn't a title of grandeur so much as it highlights the lowly position of Paul. He is a servant. So one, you keep that lowly connotation in mind. Paul is not just a servant, but he is a servant of the new covenant. And what the new covenant is reveals that nothing in Paul, even gifts of skill and moral achievements that come from God, could be the source of his success. Why specify the new covenant? Why, why bring that up? Because the new covenant is about supernatural transformation and the forgiveness of sins, right? You think about it. Why does he, he use that verbiage at this point? It draws attention very clearly to that passage in Jeremiah. That is the only passage in the Old Testament that uses the term new covenant. Surely, Paul wants you to have that passage in mind as he describes himself as a servant of the new covenant. What's the new covenant? I, I see in Jeremiah. And how did God, in that passage we read, define the central grounding reality of the new covenant? He says, I will be their God, they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Paul has been made a minister of a covenant that in one sense requires no teachers, it says, because the new covenant is about transformed hearts that already know and love God. And notice at the end, there in that passage, everything in the new covenant is rooted, is grounded upon forgiveness of sins. 
No matter how gifted or sanctified Paul was, he could not transform hearts or forgive sins. No amount of moral sanctification or knowledge or rhetorical skill can make you sufficient to serve the primary goal of the new covenant, changing hearts and forgiving sins. So how was Paul made sufficient for being a servant of the new covenant? What does he mean? The idea is probably that Paul was made sufficient by being made a participant in the new covenant, by experiencing it himself by having his own sins forgiven. And thus he becomes sufficient, not in the sense that he's equipped with a particular skill set to accomplish the new covenant, but with the experience necessary to testify to it, to be a witness to it. And so Paul's point here is not, God gave me the talents and skills and moral qualifications necessary to be a pastor. It's a true statement. But Paul's goal in this whole section is to focus on the nature of the gospel not the skill set necessary for pastors. To say that he is a servant of the new covenant is not to claim a title of prestige. It's to point out his lowly position and to highlight his own need of a Savior and his experience with that Savior. How did God make Paul sufficient to minister? He forgave his sins. Three more pieces of evidence confirm this is, is the right way to take this. Number one, Paul asked just a few verses earlier, while emphasizing his own present weakness and God's miraculous work in granting success in the ministry, who is sufficient for these things? Remember, rhetorically, the point is no one. Certainly not me in my present weakness. All the success comes from God's grace. This is parallel in 1 Corinthians, where Paul says he is not worthy or sufficient, same Greek word, to be an apostle. He wasn't saying, I'm not equipped to be an apostle. He was saying he didn't deserve to be an apostle because of his previous life of sin. The only, number two, the only other place Paul uses this exact language of God making sufficient is in Colossians. Chapter 1, the Father has qualified you, made sufficient, same Greek word, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And how does Paul elaborate on how God qualifies the Colossians to share in the inheritance? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. God does this qualifying work through Jesus because in Jesus we have the forgiveness of our sins. So the qualifications in view in Colossians, not moral transformation, not a set of gifts or skills, it's objective redemption. The objective status of forgiven, righteous, that all who believe in Jesus are gifted. And then number three, you just have the flow of the whole discussion in chapters two through seven. In the whole context of Second Corinthians, Paul's pointing out his own weakness. Just a few verses earlier, Paul used the metaphor of being a defeated prisoner of Christ. Paul said, thanks be to God who over, always overcomes me in my weakness to spread the aroma of Christ. Just a few paragraphs later, Paul will say, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The giving of the ministry of reconciliation is connected with himself being reconciled to God. In other words, by being reconciled to God, we have now been given the ministry in order to see others reconciled. Paul defines that reconciliation very clearly in the same paragraph. In Christ, God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
To be reconciled to God is for sins to be forgiven. That is, what the heart, that is at the heart of what God is doing in Christ. And that is what God did for Paul. He reconciled Paul to himself by forgiving Paul's sins. And then he gave Paul the ministry of reconciliation as a byproduct of Paul's own reconciliation, his own forgiveness. So we should understand in verse 6, when Paul says God made us sufficient, he qualified us to be servants of the new covenant, he means he made us participants in the new covenant. He forgave our sins so that now we can have the experience to powerfully, truthfully, and authoritatively testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, all the emphasis is on Paul's weakness and need and on Christ's work and his power and his goodness and his glory. He says, I'm a servant of the new covenant. I cannot, even with all the gifting and moral transformation I could possibly muster myself or get from God, even then, I cannot do the most important, essential aspect of the new covenant. I cannot redeem you from your sins. I cannot make you righteous before God. But Jesus can. I serve you making sure that you know Jesus by pointing you to Jesus. So in this way, Paul defends himself without glorifying himself. He glorifies Jesus and thereby he encourages the Corinthians to ask themselves, who is helping me look at Jesus? Who's drawing my attention to themselves? Now there's one more question to ask of these verses before we make some applications. Why does Paul contrast the New Covenant and the Old Covenant? Why does he make a point of making the contrast? How does that serve this whole idea of Paul not commending himself? How does this relate to Paul's self-defense? In what way is the newness of the New Covenant compared with the Old Covenant a a central pillar in in the thought process here? Notice, Paul makes a series of contrasts. Verse 3, not with ink, but by the Spirit. Not on tablets of stone, a.k.a. Ten Commandments, Old Covenant but on human hearts. So we know Paul has in mind the Old Covenant, reference to the stone tablets. Moses was given with the Ten Commandments. He continues the contrast in verse 6. Not a covenant of the letter, but a covenant of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So why make a point of this contrast in the midst of this uh, self-defense? I think the answer at least partly becomes clear when we meditate on that final line, because the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. How does the letter, a.k.a. the Old Covenant, kill? How does the Old Covenant kill? I mean, didn't God give the Old Covenant? Why would something God gave and ordained in the course of salvation history be said to bring death? We see in the the course of all of Paul's writings, that the Old Covenant kills in at least two ways. In the first sense, the Old Covenant contained the law, the commandments of God, which bring condemnation. In other words, the Old Covenant revealed the death sentence that all people were rightfully under because of their sin. It's not that the law of God or the commandments of God are evil, but rather we have a problem with them because we are evil. It's like what we heard in uh, the passage from Hebrews this morning. The covenant was insufficient, and then he says he found the insufficiency in the people. And Paul says in Romans, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, because sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? 
By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law is good in and of itself, but our problem is that we are sinful. And so the law reveals that to us because we cannot in ourselves keep the law. We cannot live successfully under the terms of the old covenant by our own strength because of our own innate evil hearts. And so the law condemns us. The old covenant condemns us. It puts us under a death sentence precisely because it is good and we are not. But the old covenant also kills in the sense that it does not have any saving power. It kills in the sense that it cannot give life. It was not designed to save people from their sins, which bring death. Paul says in Galatians, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, which means the law couldn't give life. It wasn't designed to. And thus, if it wasn't designed to give life, if it was ever misused, if it was ever sought or treasured as a life-giving measure, then it would kill. Advil isn't poison, but if you have cancer and you're looking for Advil to heal you, you're going to kill yourself. Advil will kill you by virtue of it keeping you from actual medicine that can help you. The Old Covenant was an agent of death insofar as it reveals the condemnation that we rightfully deserve. And if the law ever became something that we tried to obey in order to save our lives, we look to it for something that it cannot do. Thus the Old Covenant kills. And then notice also this verbiage. Why does Paul call it a covenant of letters? And now the, the, letter for, the word for letter here is different from, than back in verse 1. Paul's not talking about letters in the sense of things you mail, but letters as in the alphabet, right? In Greek, two different words. Verse 6, it's the covenant of the alphabet. Those little symbols that you scratch on a rock, you paint on a parchment. Those kill. The alphabet kills. Why does he call the covenant, the old covenant, a covenant of letters? Why make the point that letters kill? Letters are things that you can produce. You see directly. They're they're the base building block of documents, papers. They're tangible in that sense. You scratch letters on a rock. You paint letters on a parchment. You can type letters into a Word document and print it out. Arrange them into words. Make certificates, diplomas. Letters are mundane and physical. They are something you can produce and then possess. Letters are, they represent, they are the external aspect of language. Something tangible. That's why schools issue diplomas. You have something external to touch, right? The diploma isn't your degree, but you want to be able to touch your degree. The only other place Paul uses this language is in Romans 2 and 7. He says, To be a real Jew is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. In that section, he's criticizing those who would try to find their standing before God just by the letter, or in other words, just by outward qualifications, tangible signs that they could possess. In the Roman context, the use of letter terminology is very much about the outward experiences, the very tangible. I think it's, you know, in one sense, a sort of sarcastic minimizing. It's just letters. It's just letters on a paper. Some of the people Paul was addressing in Romans thought just by virtue of possessing the Old Covenant, they were somehow in a right standing with God. Just, just by having it. Just by having a document with God's law that made them somehow right with God. And in that sense, though the word is different, the idea is very much like back in verse 1 of our passage. Some viewed the Old Covenant as a letter of recommendation from God, not realizing that it was meant to lead them to Jesus. Paul says, no. 
those letters inscribed on that rock won't save you. Those documents won't save you. Those papers won't save you. In fact, they will kill you because they're drawing your attention away from Jesus. Paul is glorifying Jesus by drawing attention away from anything that anyone could produce or possess in their hands. And he does this so that, as he says to the Corinthians later in the letter, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul says you cannot be saved by anything that you can produce. You can't be saved by anything that you can touch and hold as a totem, nor can you be saved by anything that I can produce. And anyone drawing attention to merely outward tokens is going to kill you. By making his ministry all about that truth, Paul simultaneously defends his ministry without glorifying himself. He took all the glory out of anything he could do. Paul's ministry was all centered around inward realities that he himself couldn't produce. He couldn't create in the Corinthians the only thing he cared about creating in them. Now, Paul's understanding of ministry should be our understanding of ministry because gospel truths ground Paul's understanding of ministry. So we should share that understanding because we're servants of the same Lord, holding to the same gospel. What Paul says of his ministry is what, uh, tr- is, what is true of ministry in general because it's all based on the good news of Jesus Christ. So our ministry here, Grace Covenant Baptist Church's ministry, needs to be aimed counterintuitively it might sound, it needs to be aimed at things that we cannot produce. We need to create a ministry that aims at the spiritual fruit of real conversion and sanctification. We need to do ministry and life together that aims for each other to be forgiven of our sins before God, to live eternally, to be raised from the dead. So if we can't produce those things, if I can't make you forgiven, if I can't give you eternal life, How do I structure a ministry aiming at that? By structuring the ministry around Jesus. Jesus can do those things. We can't, but he can. So we make ministry about him. We can never, never stress this to to ourselves enough. We can produce numbers. We can produce conformity to certain ethics or politics or personal styles, there is much that you can do with social pressure. We could create a church culture that favored a particular ethic, particular schooling choice, particular political party, particular sense of modesty, particular diet. We could produce that through sheer effort. We could produce a submissive, mousy church if we wanted. Let's, uh, the ones in power, do whatever they want. You can bully your way to a lot of things. You can cheat your way to a lot of things. You don't even have to use negative words. We're not just talking about negative things. You can engineer your way to a lot of things. You can creatively solve your way to a lot of solutions. You can beautifully build lots of grand projects. But you cannot make the person sitting next to you righteous before God. The person sitting next to you today is going to die one day, and you will not be able to wake them up. Nothing you do then will wake them up. So we need to structure our ministry and our church life and our personal relationships around the one who can, who can wake us up after we die. So what does that look like? Number one, in preaching, it looks like preaching that has as its goal the aim to help people know Christ, not primarily live successfully in this life by any possible standard, 
even a good godly one. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul talked about lots of things in 1 Corinthians, marriage, factionalism, spiritual gifts, but all of that was to help the Corinthians know Jesus better. All preaching should be Christ-centered. It's true. We, we apply the gospel in preaching. Very practical application. But even, even then, the act of applying the gospel is in part to help us know it better, to help us understand it more, to help us understand Jesus better, to know him more, to love him more, to draw closer to him. If the way a preacher applies the gospel doesn't make it clear that his application is an application of the gospel, that it is in some way revelatory of the person and glories of Jesus, then the preaching's anemic. Even if it's faithful to a biblical ethic, it's missing something crucial. You can preach a right moral application of the gospel, but if you don't make it clear how it is an application of the gospel, then it's in danger of being interpreted as law and the means by which people will try to find their standing with God. And then it becomes death, and we must not preach death. All our preaching should, even as we make very practical applications, clearly root those applications in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that those applications make us love Him more, make us trust Him more, make us not try to work for our own righteousness. Number two, in evangelism, in personal evangelism, it looks like witnessing that primarily aims to help people know Christ, not reform their lives according to our consciences. Now, Hear me out. Disclaimer. Usually, you, a Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will have a much more trustworthy conscience than your unbelieving neighbor or co-worker. But you can pressure reform according to that conscience, and all you have given them is death. Christ is life. So make your witness about Jesus Make Jesus look glorious. Magnify his perfections, his wisdom, his love, his righteousness, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, his intercessory ministry on his behalf of his people. And again, just like in preaching, there will often be very practical applications. In your evangelism, there will be times that will involve pointing out sin that the person you're evangelizing is blind to. But our goal must never be the banishment of this or that particular sin. Our conscious goal must always be for them to see the glory of Jesus so they go to him for life. Number three, in our discipling relationships, it looks like structuring our time around the most important forms of improvement, the means of grace, the means by which God has given us to commune with him in Christ, to draw nearer to Christ, to know Christ better. Bible reading so that we can know Jesus. Prayer so that we can know Jesus. Corporate worship so that we can know Jesus. Private worship so that we can know Jesus. Yes, discipleship can be focused on particular areas of growth in life. Marriage, parenthood, evangelistic competency. But even as it focuses on those things, it should be structured around the means of grace. You want to get together with an older mom in church to be discipled to be a more godly mom? Great. Do it with Bible reading. And good biblical books I'm putting as a subset of Bible reading. Do it with prayer. Do it with worship. So that all our discipleship is never just about self-improvement, but about knowing Jesus more. Fourthly, in those rare situations where we are being attacked as a church, maybe common situations where we're being attacked as a church, it looks like structuring our defense around Jesus. 
You Christians are hypocrites. Yes, but Jesus wasn't. You are stupid and foolish. Yes, but Jesus wasn't. You failed me. Yes, but Jesus never will. The God-man lived and died and rose again. He took the wrath we deserve. He can save you and he can save me from our sins. He can save you and he can save me from death. By structuring our ministry consciously around drawing attention to Jesus, though we cannot actually acquit anyone in the heavenly courtroom, though we cannot raise anyone to new life, we will be the means of putting people into contact with the one who can. To do anything else is death. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the new life that we have in Christ. We thank you that we have eternal hope. We thank you that we can know you in Christ, that we can be forgiven of our sins. And so we ask that you would help us as your people never do anything in our ministry to take attention away from Jesus, to compete with him for glory. May all of our ministry, our life together, our relationships, our discipleship, our preaching, our teaching, may it all be with the aim for Jesus to be known, loved, and glorified. We pray in his name. Amen.